Hey, what's up, everybody? Yeah, so another installment of uh, another episode of PH Journal's podcast. And uh, I had the very fortunate opportunity to interview Mr. Stephen Townley Bassett today. Um, I had a lot of fun. I learned so much. Um, yeah, he specializes in uh, rock art and Bushman paintings. Um, yeah, in the Eastern Cape, Western Cape, and other parts of Africa and all of that beyond. Um, if you haven't yet, have a look at his website. Um, it's some amazing stuff and, and really a rich part of the South African history that we tend to miss. Um, I just got to give a big shout out to my wife, um, Love Tires, Maxis Tires. Thank you so much for all their support. Uh, Trees and Camo, if you guys haven't yet, have a look at Trees and Camo. Some fantastic um camo and um april stuff out there uh, to wear in the bush i've been wearing it now for the last three months and i'll tell you what the south african bush fault it it's a harsh place to be but the trees in camo stands up to it and uh, i've been really really impressed you know i've always said that the south african side of things um we get the low end camo range but uh trees in have really stepped up their game yeah, and, and um, produced an amazing amazing um, set of clothing that you can wear it's it's really fantastic um i used it now on the recent barbara sheep hunt where unfortunately i didn't get anything um but yeah it, it worked so well um yeah i'm really really impressed so give them a look on uh give them a like and a share on social media platforms and, and and all that jazz um just everyone that supported me again thus far have a look at my website it's up and running phjournals.com <coughs> um we've got some exciting new things happening there as far as guided tours and stuff are concerned um there's also the hunting packages for 2020 coming out um that's through um hunting africa have a look at that um, so yeah, guys, we've got some exciting things going and everyone that supported me thus far, I just want to say a very big thank you to all of you. I really appreciate it and uh, it goes a long way. Um, so sit back, relax and enjoy the podcast. Stephen Townley Bassett, Mr. Bassett, tell us a little bit where you came from and uh, what do you do? Okay. Hi, Dylan. Uh, well, thanks for inviting me on your show. Uh, I originally, I was born in Cape Town, went to school there in university and, um, you know, uh, spent some time in business and then uh, decided that my calling was elsewhere. So uh, I left corporate 
business and went back to the drawing board and started painting and and uh, investigating a love of mine, which was rock art. So that's that's really where I kind of did a a one eighty. Okay. Yeah. And that's what brought you down to the Eastern Cape. Yeah, you know, my my grandfather was looking for rock paintings in the Oatsorn district in 1910, and and he interested his uncle, his 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 um, uh, son, uh, Ginger Tony Johnson, and he wrote a few books. Now that that person, Ginger Tony Johnson, was was my uncle, okay. and and uh, as a young boy, you know, I've uh, lost my dad. He died of a heart attack when I was about four. So that uncle really was, you know, was kind of like a, a beacon for me he was he was a gregarious kind of guy he, he was always out in the mountains walking around and he was had a fascination for rock art and he used to say uh, Steve you know he used to say to my mom you know Steve doing anything these holidays because he can come out to the Cedarburg with me and and look for rock paintings and so that started so at about 12 years old I saw my first rock painting and then the love was always there or the interest in it and and yeah, eventually after the stint at in corporate business, I went back and, and really became like an apprentice to him. I wanted to know more about the rock art, what he was doing, how he was documenting these paintings, because that was his passion to document the art before it was, you know, it weathered away, weathered off the rock. And and that eventually, I was doing trips to the Eastern Cape and to the Free State, still living in Cape Town in those days, in. Um, up until the early about 2002 and then I decided now to relocate to the Eastern Cape because that gave me a better uh, springboard I suppose yeah. to other parts of South Africa the free state I could go, you know I, I'm closer to the rock art of the Eastern Cape obviously and it uh, gave me a springboard to to Natal to the free state and to the Northern Cape and of course I could go back to the Western Cape where the, there's also art there but you know, the large proportion of paintings are are here in in this part is of it the country. That th this is where the large documented side of the whole thing is. Yeah, I'd say that you know the Drakensberg is has got beautiful art, and and the Free State, the Eastern Free State. In fact, if you really stood, if you looked at a map of a, a topographical map of South Africa, there's there's a kind of giant, uh, you know, horseshoe of mountains from. The the Brandberg up in the north uh, west of Namibia, okay. coming down through the um, you know the 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 Cedarburg Mountains, the Western Cape, and then down the Southern Mountains, and then up through the Stormberg where we are, um, and up into the Drakensberg, and then into Zimbabwe. So in the in that horseshoe of mountains, there are literally thousands of sites. Okay. And and the fr and the Eastern Cape, I must say, I think it's one of the best kept secrets. It's there you've got a lot of rock art. If you and look, <coughs> why 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 would the Eastern Cape? Is it just because of our mountain ranges? Why would it make for such a good settlement for these guys that are doing the paintings? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, probably climate. Um, you know, as we know, the the San people or b they have various names, but. Um, as an umbrella term, Khoisan representing yeah. both Khoi Khoi people and the San people lived in Southern Africa for many, many thousands of years. They, they were the first people here. Um, you know, we know that from uh, material remains from rock shelters uh, and, and caves. Yeah. So, so that was, 
always always find this intriguing now, especially with the the whole land issue in South Africa. So the koi actually spread from the Cape as we knew, right across the I mean, or right up to KwaZulu Natal, or or just to parts of the Eastern Cape, and then it broke into different clans. You know, I would say, <coughs> from what I can understand from the uh, you know the, the prehistory of this region of Southern Africa, there, I mean, Tony Trail, who's a a linguist from from Wits, um, he in his, some of his papers he he spoke about eleven different linguistic groups in Southern Africa. So I I think the Khoi San people uh, as hunter-gatherers and later as herders populated uh, you know across uh, southern Africa I don't think that they originated down in the Western Cape and then moved east I think there were pockets of people um, communities across southern Africa Um, you know as he said as Tony Trail said there he he, uh, in his research came across 11 different linguistic groups within the Khoisan community so, you know, it's only in the last 10 to 12,000 years that humans have been uh, tilling the soil and, you know, became farmers and, and domesticated livestock. Prior to that, we were hunting, hu- hunting and gathering human okay. beings, homo sapiens. And um, that was the lifestyle, mm. you know, going out there. And, and you're a hunter, so you probably identify <laughs> with, a, with a son. Yeah, I <laughs> know. But, uh, but now, yeah. Mr. Bassett, so, so it was only the same people that did bushman paintings, or were there other clans or anything? There like were that? other groups. I okay. think predominantly we can assign most of the art to the what we know is, you know, genetically Khoisan people, the the hunter gatherer San communities. They did um, the paintings in the caves, and also th- those are more realistic, fine line paintings, mm. if you like, and and they changed in in style later on, but. The Khoi Khoi, also the herders, they also did art. They also made art. Usually that's more geometric shapes and lines and zigzags and circles and that. And then also Nguni-speaking people, black communities that painted, you know, okay. up in Venda. And they had much less of a painting tradition on yeah. rock, you know. Okay. But, but yeah. But I would say that, by and large, most of the rock art we see was originated by Khoisan people. Okay, because that's that's sort of the the typical pattern we see throughout. A lot, I mean, a lot of the paintings here in the Queenstown Game Reserve at Hunters Hill, those sort of paintings, they're very similar to. So there wouldn't be would it be two different clans of sand, or would it be guys just moving from one spot to the next spot? Do they stay in one place, or do they keep moving? Yeah, I think it would. Their movement depend on on availability of food and okay. you know animals and and uh, plants um, I mean uh, research in the Western Cape uh, showed that um, you know communities living at the coast in in in, shel- in, in shelters there uh, when they looked at isos- isotopes uh, that would would indicate what their diet was when they looked you know this is unearthing bones and skeletal remains in shelters when they looked at um, those uh, isotopes in people that lived at the coast and isotopes of bones found with people you know, that were buried in caves inland, 100 yeah. kilometers inland, there was a distinct difference. Um, so, with, you know, uh, so it showed that people that lived at the coast mainly stayed there because there, there, there were theories that, in, for example, in that area that the San moved 
from the coast uh, inland in the warmer months and then, and then again migrated back again in the colder months and stayed at the coast. But that didn't, wasn't borne out by the isotope research you know, of the chemical composition in the bones. It showed that the people that lived at the coast generally stayed there okay. and people inland stayed there. So in some senses, the movement of these people wasn't, and that's over about a 100 kilometer distance. Uh, from the west coast of South Africa inland. Um, so it shows that they probably were more, uh, you know, they stayed in one area yeah. as long as it could provide them with food and that, you know. Um, and then here in the Eastern Cape as well, I mean, I you know, it's hard to say exactly <coughs> what group. I would say probably the, uh, well, there were different groups of, of, of song. Uh, I've dealt with the Eastern Cape Farm Association based uh, in Middleburg and some of the community came up from, from Port Elizabeth to chat to me about painting implements and they wanted to know about their ancestors and, and their forebears and how they painted, etc. And that was the from the Kham community. Okay. So, you know, people, there were definitely, you know, thousands for thousands of years in, in the Hunters Hill area, uh, here in Queenstown, um, through the Stormberg, all these mountains, there were song people living and painting. Uh, so now meeting all these, or seeing these different uh, art forms and having done so many different projects and stuff, which one would you highlight so far would be your most memorable site you visited? Gosh, uh, <laughs> you know, different sites for different reasons, actually. Um, there's some beautiful paintings here in the Eastern Cape very beautiful paintings in yellow and and you know all a whole range of of, of colors so um i'm trying to think of a of a site here in the eastern cape i think hunters hill has got some interesting images with um you know they they painted in white in yeah. one of your shelters and and that's unusual that it's you know it's they still fairly clear uh paintings at that site are um it looks like a white uh, rhino, mm. uh, you know, and large herbivores like that often also are um, metaphors for or indicate uh, possibly a rhino that was walking around on the ground, a literal interpretation, or they often are metaphors for, for rain animals or depict rain animals and how important the rain was okay. and water. So that's interesting in, in your shelter. And also uh, there appears to be, uh, you know, people with... with uh, the, uh, you know, aprons, uh, you know, with uh, spears, mm. bows, uh, and arrows, and uh, it could be a conflict scene between. There was conflict between Nguni-speaking tribes and and the Bushmen. Okay. Uh, so that that could be one of the reasons. Uh, you know, one of the interpretations of that painting. I think there's also a feline in in one of your in in that cave. Um, and obviously there were a lot of felines and they have a lot of myths and legends about felines, mm. the Song people, about shamans changing into felines and, you know, going to uh, attack another group or yeah. uh, just, uh, you know, for various reasons. They were important, you know, um, connecting with the spirit world. But, uh, yeah, and then I think you've got another cave there. It's also interesting with a little a little alcove with, with paintings of... of, of figures in red and mm. and uh, and eland mm. yeah what with these guys 
<coughs> excuse me sorry but under i mean in school and stuff we we always learned that they were um hallucinating is this true is this is this how they painted a lot of their paintings were they dragged up as such yeah you know dylan i think it's um uh essentially the the san had a shamanistic they were a shamanistic society a shamanistic faith so they definitely had a very strong belief system you know in the spirit world they believed in a created god and they believed they could access the spirit world through uh flying through being you know in the air in 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 travel while in trance or in through water holes or going underground or indeed through the rock because the rock is is uh is is a really a veil between this world and the spirit world so the the rock face and the paintings on the rock um are very important in their uh, was very important in their life in their belief systems their cosmology um so you often see paintings of of animals of the forequarter coming out of a crack in a rock or a snake or a, a, a serpent coming out of a hole yeah. that's in the rock so the rock background was was a very important okay. in their art um but to answer your question uh, earlier yeah, there are many there are several sites around the country that, yeah. are, that are very very special some on the roofs of shelters in the fr- in the free state or in the in the drakensberg but here in the eastern cape as i said i think you guys have got some nice nice art there mm. and um uh yeah so a lot of the art a lot of the meaning in the paintings has its foundation in in their spirituality there's no doubt about that you know there were uh, it was a german linguist back in the late 1800s uh, wilhelm blake and um his sister-in-law lucy lloyd they ended up interviewing uh song people from the northern cape that had been caught for stock theft and brought down to the breakwater prison in cape town and so that's i'm talking the late 1800s yeah. 1870s and that and they they uh, got a tremendous amount of information from these people. Uh, Wilhelm Blake actually came out to South Africa in the late 1800s. He was a linguist and he came out to translate uh, you know Nguni speak uh, speaking languages uh, black languages into the into uh, the Bible into black languages if you know what I'm saying. Okay. But then he get became fascinated by by the bushmen in that he encountered in in the in Cape Town. So he took down the two of them took down about 12,000 pages of notes interviewing these bushmen from the northern cape asking them what you know the beliefs were uh, the possible meaning of, of of some of the engravings that they showed them engravings are where artists are scratched into a rock and um you know the kind of information they got was was amazing they they really highlighted how much their beliefs and their religion impacted on the art yeah and and uh, of course, the other uh, reasons for the paintings. Um, very interesting research is being done now. Uh, well, more research, I should say, than in the past into gender and, th- and the importance of gender and puberty rituals. A young boy uh, killing an animal and you know becoming a man, man. And, a, and a woman, a young girl, her first menstruation, and everything that that symbolized and meant. Mm. Um, so they. Uh, they're actually close associations between that and the rock art and that and the rain. You know, the rain is life-giving. I mean, rain, water, yeah. as you know, in Southern Africa is so important. Yeah. And and rain was 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 such a valued com- uh, water was such a valued commodity. Rain had all kinds of 
meaning for them, mm. you know. And and as the rain gave life to the to the earth, so a woman's uh, you know fluids, her passing of fluids at menstruation and menses and that also gave life, okay. the p- potential to give life. So there, there there's quite a lot of um, you know convincing evidence that th- mm. that some of the art is actually reflecting ritual and okay. and uh, you know and write a passage yeah. yeah but now what would they get like i'm not an artist so <laughs> I, w- I would be on the hunting side of things so would would there be one artist per like a clan or or group or yeah that's hard to say you know as far as i know no european or, or no traveler through the uh, southern africa hundreds of years ago interviewed uh, a song person you know and said sort of how many of you paint in this yeah. group, or, or what do you? Because that's been my interest is the, the technology behind the painting. How do they make their brushes and paints yeah. and things like that? And th- there's very little in the written record, so uh, it's hard to say how many people would have painted. I think it's quite possible that that women painted. Um, very likely, there were probably uh, one or two people in a small band of say twenty or fifteen or twenty people that would have been. Um, the painter, yeah. you know, it, it might have been the shaman uh, who would go into this, you know, into trance and okay. visit the spirit world. Would come back from that state and then relay what what he had or she had seen okay. to someone who was skilled with a brush. You know, in, in in my own work, I had a extraordinary experience back in the early two thousands when uh, an old I was asked to to meet an old sand descendant. It was half Sutu, half Psalm, and um, Kerry Kintusi, and I, I worked with him in the Drakensberg, and he he wanted paintings from his birth cave painted in a shelter. It didn't matter where the shelter was, but he wanted to complete a healing of the land ceremony that he never yeah. did. In his, in his day, he was an initiation leader. When I met him, he was, must have been, he was in his 90s, you know, he was an old yes. man. But a uh, wonderful old man, you know, great sense of humor, and... And, um, yeah, some of the things he told me to paint and the rituals I had to go through before painting on this rock face were very interesting and enlightening, okay. you know. And then, so tell us a bit about now the, the tool side of things. And the, this is, I know, where your expertise is very high up there. So yeah, tell, us, <laughs> tell us some of the stuff we, we can expect. Look, I think um, for me, you know, when I was young, and I went to that, I remember going to this rock art shelter with that uncle I told you about, uh, Tony Johnson. And he, of all the things that, that one asks when seeing a rock paintings for the first time, you know, I encounter people, take them to a rock art site, mm. as you do, you know. And w- one's questions are around, you know, um, who did the paintings? Why did they do the paintings? When did they do these paintings? And, and, and how did they do them? Now, of those questions was the last one that intrigued me the most, way yeah. back was how, you know, what was the technology? So, you know, for the last 30 years, I've been uh, kind of, you know, when I'm out in the felt collecting materials and, and, you know, many, many years ago, I said to myself, well, look, let me, I am documenting these paintings because they're being weathered off the rock. I want to continue the work of my grandfather and my uncle. And, um, but let me use the the implements and, 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 pigments and paints that they might have used. So I was working on a project in the Cedarberg Mountains. I was seconded to Stellenbosch University Archaeology Department and 
um, you know, I was to look for new sites in the Cedarburg Wilderness Area and the Groot Winterk Wilderness Area. Mm. I'm talking now about the Clan William Citrus Dull Portable Area of the country. And I worked on this project as the field researcher for two and a half years. It was a wonderful time in my life. I mean, I was getting paid to walk in the mountains. You're not getting yeah. a, great, a huge salary, but it was just, it allowed me to go into the mountains and look for paintings and and uh, also at the same time I decided to start collecting materials okay. and and so you know if you so so getting back to the constituents of paint um, there are basically three constituents to paint okay. any paint whether you're painting your house or you someone's goes to the you know the art shop and buy some paint you've got a you've got a pigment which is often comes in a ground format in a, in a powder format and then to that you can add if you're doing an oil painting, it would be safflower oil or one of those oils. It could be linseed oil, and then you're making an oil paint, and that's what oil painters use. Or if you're a watercolorist, you know, you could take that same pigment and mix it with gum arabic or uh, ox gall or something like that, and you'd make a watercolor paint. Mm. And and with these uh, guys, you know, with a with a sawn, um, I looked around, and there are basically four pigments that they could have used, and they did use, you know. That was, um, you know, yellows um, and oranges and, and reds, those two. So you've got red, yellow, black, and white. Okay. So black would have come from manganese oxide or very dark hematite or charcoal. Um, uh, yeah, those, those would have been sources. I use a lot of charcoal. It's got to be treated correctly, and then it makes a good paint. And then you've got, uh, so that you've got the powdered, the pigment, you've got the carrying agents, which could be water or saliva, and you've got binding agents, which are, uh, in this case, uh, with rock art, would have been blood, uh, gall, uh, you know, plant juices, water, saliva. Again, well, saliva, as I've said, is a carrying agent more, but it does break down fats. Yeah. So uh, you've got those three constituents of any paint the the powder the pigment um, and then the binding agent and the carrying agent sometimes the binding agent is also serves as a carrying agent like egg egg can you can mix up paint with egg okay. and it's also a binder but sometimes you need to get the right consistency of paint and and you know that that led me to the next um, uh, question was how on earth did they get some of these paintings beautiful paintings I've yeah. seen on the roofs of caves and so they would have had to make <laughs> the pigment in a, you know, just the right, and the paint, just the right consistency, and they would have had to make brushes out of, you know, just the right kind of hair, and and that's been my experimentation too, you know, making brushes with uh, with feathers, feather tips, uh, or with hair. Mm. Okay, so that was the two main yes. sort of things, but I mean, you've shown me uh, the bones and all of that sort of stuff. So that was used as uh, what's yeah. it? Uh, Palette. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You know what, what's been the most intriguing sort of artifact you've picked up around the years? Gosh, I, I think one of them was a part of a giraffe's kneecap, which I found. Okay. It's a bowl, lightweight, very strong, yeah. and I've been able to use that as a little um, dish okay. to you know in my own experimentation. Um, going through this process, uh, it's lightweight. You can carry it a distance. I mean, if we, like we're sitting here now uh, in my studio, if this was our cave, but we were going to go and do uh, uh, painting 
on a cave wall about half a kilometer from here, up a valley. Uh, it was some initiation rite. Um, and, and, you know, you want to carry the heavier stuff. You don't want to do that. Yeah. You want to carry yeah. lightweight stuff. Yeah. And that's what I did with my own field trials, if you like. Okay. I found that, that lightweight was much better. Um, you know, your feather brushes and your hair brushes have to be protected. So I put them in a hollowed out um, Kemsburg horn. You know, you, it was it was working out what what they could have used. You know, the okay. scrotums of animals um, yeah. does sound a bit bit painful <laughs> uh, to talk about, but but basically they make very good bags. Yeah. Well, you know that's their design, but but for holding pigment in that, mm. you know, so dried out and then stitched, you can uh, you can use them as holding vessels. So that, that, that was interesting. You said they actually so if they had a ritual. So they wouldn't be based in these caves. They would actually go up there when they've got a sort of a ritual. Well, you know, it just seems from from my own and some of my colleagues' uh, you know, experience and finding is that some of the caves where they lived, they also painted. But there definitely, there are places where there are paintings, but there's no evidence of that people lived okay. there for any extended period of time. So it might have just been a place, a ritual place of, of, of sort of, uh, religious significance, yeah. you know. I often, often tell people when, when we go to a rock art site, you know, just behave as you would in a in a church or a, a place of worship or or a um, museum, you know, um, or an art gallery, I should say, yeah. not a museum, uh, an art gallery, um, because of the nature of the art. Yeah, but I mean, so. They've taken all these things up to where they're going to share this ritual, but why, why? So they will choose a specific rock because, like you said, they use this. The, the, the background is a specific way, or whatever for that that particular scene or whatever they can. But my 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 interesting thing about this whole thing is is that why why would they why would they choose a specific outline area? For instance, so, so let's take the game reserve for example. Why why would they track all the way up to the top there instead of just doing it right down mm -hmm. here on a, a flat stone or something? Uh, and they can take it with them forever. I mean, because yeah. I mean they hunt together as they move around from point to point. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, as I said earlier, they you might have found if there was enough food, they would have stayed in okay. an area. They didn't they didn't traverse possibly as much as we thought they did. Yeah. you know, but. Um, I would say, you know, the, the ritual significance, you know, they might, someone might have identified or the shaman might have said, look, that place up there is, I've, I've, I've been able to connect with, with, with our ancestors or, you know, that is where uh, that place is particularly potent. There's a potency in that cave. Yeah. He's felt some sort of um, connection with that yeah. or, or if it's uh, women, it could be on the, a cave on the way to a watercourse, and that particular cave has got significance for them. It's it's like why do we, you know, um, uh, yeah, build buildings or places of worship in certain places? Um, why do we go to those places to worship? You know, when we could worship right here in yeah, our home. Yeah, yeah. So we go there because it's a place of gathering. Yeah. Gathering, you mm. know, where people can get together and share and worship. Okay. Yeah, so, th but now, Mr. Bassett, with all these arts being, I mean, yes, the, the ones I've seen are magnificent. How, how, 
how did they manage to preserve them so long? Was it was it like you said the elements in the paint that they used, or is it just because no one's been able to find them? Mm. Or I've always I've always been so interested because a lot of people like they spoil them with graffiti and mm. all that sort of jazz, but you can still see them there. And I mean, it's incredible that they've lasted that long. I mean, what how what would you say the latest? period of time when they stopped doing Bushman paintings? Look, I would say people living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, gosh, you know, probably we, what we know, 2019, I mean, you know, probably in the last 130 years, 150 okay. years, you know, uh, it was quite difficult for people, you know, they were becoming acculturated yeah. and, you know, black and white farming communities were moving into areas. Yeah. But um, so probably up until the last 150 years, okay. possibly people were still painting in caves, you know, uh, 200 years, not not uh, much less than that. Um, okay. And then for thousands of years before that. And and I think the, the why the paints have, I mean, in my own tests that I've done, and I've done some of these tests, uh, you know, 30 years ago, an accelerated test where I've painted with a whole range of substances. Um, so that's grinding up ochre, mixing it with egg, blood, gall, saliva, water, a whole range of things, okay, urine. And, and um, you know, when I've, I've, I've applied, so I've let the, in these particular paint samples, I've, on a rock, I've let them dry and naturally, and then, and then I've, um, you know, subjected them to, say, a very fine uh, sand or powder at about two bars of pressure, blowing it onto this like a like a mini sandblaster, yeah. and across across these um, swatches of paint, and uh, and then also doing the same with water under pressure, s trying to simulate uh, rain yes. and and storm and mm. and you know when the wind's really howling and it's blowing up dust and that's coming into the shelter, so those were some of the things I did and I found that paint that was that I'd really ground very very finely or that the the actually my origin of pigment was it was a fine powder fine ochre okay in in rock form but it was very soft so yes. my my source was very good okay with a rich color very fine particular structure when I mixed that with various mixes with egg with fat or marrow fat from a bone of an animal um, and uh, blood, blood, and and your saliva has enzymes in it that break down fat and make it more easy to work with. Um, that paint mixture was very, very resilient, okay. extremely resilient. So, and 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 also depends on the the actual rock itself. You know, if if the rock is very friable, obviously over hundreds of years, the 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 layers, surface layers of the rock will eventually weather off or crack off flake off yeah if it's a very stable rock but it's not too hard um the the paint mixture if you've made it really well in right viscosity it actually gets drawn into the particular structure of the rock so it actually stains the rock that's why pigments like the the yellows and reds they're they're mineral pigments they're oxides okay and and they are very very um you know permanent they they stable over time um in fact if you look at, you know, painting paints that you can buy today, if you go and buy an, uh, a red or an ochre 
oil paint or watercolor paint, you'll see that, that iron oxide or yellow or red ochre is in, yeah. in the mix even today. And would they, so, so these gathering areas, would they, I know um, there's documented, um, there's stuff documented in, at the coastlines that they would actually, um, the bushmen along the coast would actually stack these pile of shoals up. And I know there's one in Mazeppa Bay that's stacked up and it's actually called a midden. Yes, that's quite right. Yes, and they would, that, that's how they would identify their gathering place or whatever. Is there a specific, because the ones that I've seen, I can't, I mean, I get lost going to them sometimes. So yeah. is there any specific in the inland side of things that they um, identify as that being the place to gather or whatever the case may be? Uh, yeah, when you're talking about middens at the coast, mm. you know, the shell middens, uh, middens basically a, a nice name for a rubbish dump. So they would have been eating shellfish and then yeah. just dumping it in one place all the time, mm. you know. So yes, that is a, a place to identify, a way to identify, you know, a, a habitation over a long time at that place, but people living there. But inland, um, <coughs> yeah, I think it's probably identified by rock art, you okay. know, in caves. Um, and sometimes you find uh, graves, you know, and, 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 and especially, well, scattered across the landscape, you find, uh, you know, remnants of stone tools and stone flakes and that that have clearly been worked, you know. Yeah. Um, they would have been making uh, stone points out of them for arrowheads or uh, cutting tools and, you know. So, but that, that is, you know, some, some parts of South Africa you find concentrations more than other places, you know, but really across the whole landscape, okay, you can find that. And you know. and um, is there is there certain areas where the guys express themselves more or um, a lot less, or people just were a lot more active in one area or or not? Look, I'd say that you know climate definitely had a part to yeah. play. I mean, things have changed over tens of thousands of years. You know, um, they've found in uh, excavations that uh, you know around thirty to sixty six thousand years ago things were much colder and there's less deposit of you know human remains in that yeah. in in that stratigraphy people weren't hanging around they were driven to warmer parts you know and then as things warmed up again they could go into uh, go into those colder place that were previously colder but I'm talking over tens of thousands of yeah. years you know yeah. and there were migration seasonal migrations as well I mean if you look at just north of you the the Stormberg mountain range yeah. I mean that was a lot of grassland and very very cold and it's unlikely that anyone could and there weren't any you know trees of significance there being mainly grassland that people would have been able to survive there through the winter very cold winters I mean it goes down to minus 18 degrees there mm. Uh, that that they probably only went up there in the win in summer months, you know, following okay. the the uh, grazing animals. And Mr. Bassett, so now <coughs> we know now that the sand were um, they were the ones doing all these paintings. Why why wh what has driven them to? I want to say extinction, but they're not around anymore. There's not a lot of them around for us to. Um, what was the main cause of them disappearing? Yeah, yeah, disappearing. Yeah. yeah, I think it's look. It's it, it, I don't know. You know, around the world, it's you know, stronger economies, stronger technologies, people with with uh, 
more advanced weaponry, if you like, uh, you know, coming into an area. So what you had was, you know, Nguni-speaking people, black people coming down from East Africa down into s s negotiating all the Tsetsifly and that okay. up north of us, and then being able to come through with their cattle and then bringing herding into, into southern Africa, our region where we are here in the Eastern Cape. Um, you know, the, um, cattle came into this region probably around 2,200 years ago, and, and uh, well, sheep around then from Persia, yeah. and then probably a little bit later, you know, 15 to 1,800 years ago, she uh, cattle came into the area. So you had herders coming down, and then, and then la so that was, um, you know, uh, black communities coming down yeah. from East Africa into Southern Africa. And then, and then uh, later, in the last sort of 400 years, you know, more um, European settlers starting to come into the, you know, starting at, at, at refreshment stations at the Cape and then moving into the hinterland. Put a l those two groups put a lot of pressure on the Bushmen and their way of, the Song people and their way of life, their hunting and gathering way of life. So I think you had people actually, you know, Song people being killed um, because they were now, they didn't know any better. They just saw, probably mm. saw, saw cattle and sheep and yeah. thought, well, this is a lot easier <laughs> than catching a springbok. Yeah. And then found that they were actually stealing someone else's animals and then they got shot. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and, and then, or they were acculturated. They were brought into the other communities to, to work as, as, as labor, you yeah. know, um, women and children uh, coming into to, to these advancing communities, if you like. So, but, but understand that the, 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 the San, the Khoisan gene is still alive and well and living in many, many people in South Africa, you know. Um, people of color would, would have, uh, so some communities will definitely have have Khoisan genes in them, and and you're finding that uh, actually a lot around the world. You know, where small, um, previously disadvantaged communities mm. or are now standing up and saying, you know, we we want uh, to have a say. We want to reclaim our past. We yeah. we are proud that we are San people, and and that's right. It, it should be like that, mm. and they can claim their identity back again mm. and not feel ashamed of it. There was a time when they would hide their identity. But that, that's that's very interesting to me because of this whole land claim stuff that's going on in South Africa. But we won't get too much into that. But <laughs> the the um with them having such a rich history, and I know it's played a huge part in in the hunting side of things in South Africa and development and stuff. When we see these paintings, what can we do to preserve them, and what is being done to preserve them? Because there's got to be some sort of sanctioning around them to protect them because i mean once they're gone they're gone forever you know sure. so i mean there's guys like you that are preserving them but what, what me i don't know anything about painting oh. what can i do from my side when i take these tourist groups and stuff that to see these paints yeah i would say look it is a it obviously is a concern you know and it's and it's part of the process of life i guess with everything you know everything yeah. eventually deteriorates and dies i mean the art is being uh, is is under constant threat of natural weathering. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, I think one of the biggest things is to to educate oneself, to educate the public about the value of the art as as, as a cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of our cultural 
heritage in this part of the world, in Southern Africa, and, and, that, and how to behave at a rock art shelter, uh, not to touch the paintings. Normally when I take folks to, to a rock art shelter, I'll, I'll encourage them to just pick up a blade of grass, you know, on the way there, a dry piece of grass or a twig, and then they can use that to point with when they're pointing at images on the rock face, if they can get up right close to yeah. them. Um, because otherwise people are touching them and pointing, you know, yeah. the fats and oils on your fingers will also be deposited on the rock face and eventually the painting will be destroyed, you know. Um, there are places in, in the country where sites have been prepared for visitation, you know, with boardwalks and information boards and things like that, you know. So unfortunately they, they're not as many as we would like there to be because it's a cost thing as well. But private landowners like yourself, you know, you can definitely um, uh, always be with people, you know, have a, uh, have a guide, be the guide at the site, tell them uh, not to touch the paintings and, and, then, and then talk to them about the art. You know, there are leaflets that one can buy, books on rock art that I can help you as well, you know, with literature you can give visitors. I think wha once people understand the value of something, they'll understand the need to preserve it and protect yeah. it. That's my experience. So it's, it's, it's uh, explaining to them what to do. I mean, look, in terms of protecting them, there's not a whole lot one can do. One can build replica sites. Uh, I, I've chosen to do this documentation, this lifelike, well, life-size, using the pigments that they used to create the documentary paintings I do. And those, you know, might be in museums and private collections even, you know, today but that that's my motivation that's what i can try and do and with with technology get more off the rock face than you can actually see on site you know with with software today that can expand the range of the human eye i'm able to document scenes that you can barely see you know yeah. and bring them back to life if you like so that's one record so i'll present that as an historical record but you as a landowner you know, talk to people about the value of them, the fragility of them, give them some literature to read, and always be have, have make sure there's a guide with them when they go to a site. Um, you know, years ago, they did try and put a clear lacquer, paint a clear lacquer over the paintings okay. to preserve them from the elements. Yeah. But the w that actually never worked because the painting, that piece actually started to discolor because there's, you know, one doesn't realize the, well, what they realized was the, over time, the, the weathering also from within the rock to the surface. So you've got, on a microscopic scale, you know, uh, uh, moisture and that being leached out of the rock. And that was leached out yeah. in that particular case and hit this barrier from the inside yeah. out and then started to discolor it. So okay. it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not an option to start painting clear lacquer over the paintings. And yeah. anyway, in terms of the National Monuments Act, all paintings are protected in South Africa. Okay. You may not deface it, remove it, anything like that, you know, damage them in any way without a uh, permit, you know, without, okay. uh, remove them certainly without a permit. Yeah. But any kind of damage or, or wanton vandalism is punishable by okay. law. Mm. So <coughs> somebody coming over and they want to come and see some some of these sites and stuff, where, where would you recommend them to go to? Where, where would be the first place they would stop at? Somebody that's interested in these type in of things. Especially uh, the South African history. Yeah, well, look, if they were in the Eastern Cape in our area, I'd say go to your your property, you know, and, and have a look at the art there. I mean, it's a, a beautiful view from that one site that I've, two sites I've been to on your properties. So that's one place to go to, you know, museums. The 
if they were visiting Cape Town, for example, they could go to the Cape Town uh, National Museum at the top of the gardens. That's got some lovely uh, images of rock art that were actually that are on rock that were yeah. cut out of caves. Okay. And and uh, the Origins Center Museum uh, up at Witz uh, in Johannesburg on the campus there. That's got a fantastic museum. There's a wonderful state-of-the-art museum. They can see rock art there and 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 get you know um, learn a lot about our prehistory. So they actually cut a section of the rock out. Is, is that not maybe the way to go? Well, look, so some people, you know, years ago, uh, where uh, government sanctioned the cutting out of, of some p uh, rock f pieces of rock with rock paintings on, uh, on them because of they were going to maybe build or a road through there yeah. or a dam was going to be built or, or they thought that that was the best way to preserve them at the time. So, um, you know, an artist by the name of Walter Battis, I mean a well-known South African artist, he he got permission to cut out or he supervised the cutting out of some piece uh, rock paintings and they're in the archive now in museums. But, um, yeah, it's it's it uh, would be an exceptional circumstances that that would be... Okay. Uh, sanctioned. I mean, I know just recently in the last couple of years, uh, currently they're working on raising the wall, the Clan William Dam wall, and, and the raising of that wall and then the uh, consequential flooding of higher ground will cover a lot of sites and, and uh, historical, uh, you know, places of historical interest. So in the one case, they, want they cut out a rock okay. painting because it's going to get flooded. So when they Dam. do these environmental assessments, these paintings are getting considered. Yes, I okay. think yeah. The the current uh, government uh, is doing a lot more, has done a lot more over the last twenty okay. odd years, for the conservation of rock art than previous governments. Okay. They've recognised it as as really part of one of the cornerstones of our cultural heritage, and and that it needs to be preserved and protected. And 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 it and also you know from a point of view of tourism, it's it people yeah. find it from overseas from other countries find it very interesting, the rock art that we have, because we really have an incredible rock art uh, gallery here in Southern mm. Africa, you know, one of the finest in the world, in terms of number of images and in terms of content. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Well, Mr. Bassett, in closing, firstly, thank you so much again for doing this. Where can we find you? Where? What, what, and I know you've done some beautiful artwork over here. So where yeah. can we see that? Where yeah. where can the guys get you next year? Or okay. Well, look, um, you know, I, I live in Queenstown. Or it's the new name is Kamani in in yeah. the Eastern Cape, and uh, this is where my studio is. And yeah, guys are welcome. We're at 18 Madeira Street, Queenstown, and you know, um, you can probably pass on my yeah. my details. I'll put the details. Cell on phone and yeah. And then, and then um, I saw on your website as well, you went to a few SCR shows. Yeah. Are you going to be doing that soon? Or? Uh, well, it's likely in the future. What uh, I've enjoyed them in, in Vegas and Reno. They've been fantastic. Yeah. They're, they're really shows to, to you got to behold them to, to really understand the, yeah. the, the magnitude of them. Mm. But um, uh, I, I exhibited in, in a show called the Southeastern Wildlife Exposition in Charleston this okay. year. And we're going back again in February. So every year, I try and do one show. And next year, in 2020, it'll be Charleston okay. in February. Should be good. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for thank inviting you. me.